0: Hey, well, well, let's go ahead and get started, even though others are still coming in the door, because I wanna... I want to give us as much time and be able to dialogue and uh, just get everything done. Hey, you should have got this little card just sitting there that we'll talk about at the end. If you grabbed a sheet of paper when you came in, that's great. Uh, Let me just apologize. Let me clarify two or three things up front. I know most of us do electronic stuff now, so if you want PowerPoints and stuff at the end, I'll be happy. I have it on a flash. I'll throw it to you now. If you prefer to type, if you're on your iPad, you can't do my flash. I actually have stuff for those. I've got it on this. I can hand you the notes would be happy to email them to you also. Third, I put blanks on there. So now I just want you to know I know you're intelligent and you can write down all the notes that you want to write down. Okay? I realize that. Some people are like, oh you put a blank like I'm a dummy or something. Here's the truth. I'm ADD, and I need an excuse to write, okay? So it just start writing, and the blanks aren't really the information. Everything I say between the blanks is the real meat. You do know that for people that, like, put blanks down. So it's just a sheet of paper to write on. Lastly, let me apologize. She made all the copies and stuck them in a folder, and they're softer paper. I, w- I would have had harder paper. I'm sorry, She didn't. She, my secretary apologized, and I didn't notice before I came here. So for those who are writing, I hope you have a, a piece of something behind that right on. Um, apologize. Hey, my name is Kevin Marsico. I'm a church planter from the Washington, D.C. area. I planted my church up there 11 years ago. We kind of created a training network and uh, started, uh, we've started four churches out of our church and uh, helped train leaders and uh, materials like this uh, for the last 10 years uh, all around the country and around the world. Uh, I've personally worked with about uh, 64 different uh, denominations and groups. I'm a Southern Baptist by birth and this is where I am, and and over the last few years, I was doing a lot of training in in Canada with our Southern Baptist leadership, and uh, they approached me and asked me would I come help uh, with church planning in the Northeast, so I just took uh, on the responsibility of the regional mobilizer for the whole Northeast Corridor, so I help work with the major sin cities from Washington, D.C. up to Boston with uh, the most, probably one of the most lost parts of our country with the most intensive Uh, In case you don't know, for the Northeast, we actually have out of the most dense places in our country of the size of land to the quantity of people, nine out of the top ten states and Washington, D.C., nine out of the top ten most congested states are the Northeast states. Only one state makes it to the top ten list. We are uh, the most congested. So uh, I'm passionate about church planning in that region, and um, and that's why I'm here. So uh, that's just a little bit about me. Uh, You can ask questions later when we talk. And uh, let's just talk real quickly about today, and then I'll pray. Uh, One of the things we come to dispelling church planning myths. um, Y'all ever seen the show Mythbusters? Anybody ever seen that on on Discovery? I, I mean, I don't know. Mythbusters is the show. It's on Discovery Channel. And what they do is they, they take urban legends or myths or something like someone took a photograph of Pearl Harbor during uh, you know b- before we got into the World War and it looks like a submarine is in there and somebody argued that they believe it was the Japanese that had come in on a sub to do pre-stuff prior to a launch. And so they spent this whole show trying to figure out, is this photograph real? Could it really have happened? So they do crazy things like that. But then they also go to myth stuff like urban myth or, you know, like, with hey, Hey, is it possible? They actually did a whole show on this and they did it scientifically. Is it possible to get so much methane built up in a porta potty that you could actually blow it up? And they actually did a show where they blew up porta potties based on the quantity of methane. Or they did an entire show um, asking this question For those who fly regularly, is it possible that the suction on a toilet in an airplane can be so strong that you could get a limb of your body caught in it? And get stuck. Uh, they did a whole show on this, and one of the more t- 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 interesting ones, you know, when Tom. I Sell- uh, thought, oh no, I'm no, sorry, it was Tom um, the Cruise on, on a movie. He jumps off a bridge, and as he's falling to the water, uh, it's frozen. The, the, the river is frozen, and so he pulls out his gun. He shoots the ice; it cracks open, and he breaks through the ice instead of falling to his death. And so they spent a whole show going, "Is that possible?" You know, could those things happen? And they just ask this thing, and at the end of it, here's what they say. Is this truly a myth? Or is it something that people just make up or they imagine? Was it just a good scene? What was it? And so what they really ask this stuff, hey, is what we hear true? Or is it just, can we dispel it? So when it comes to church planning, I just want to say this. There's all kinds of information that's just floating out there. And when I talk to churches and other leaders talk to churches, there is regular statements. There's almost four statements that almost always come up that at the end of the day I just want to tell you is this. They're myths. But that doesn't mean they don't have um, some reality of processing behind them or, or what needs to be talked about. But what I want to do really quickly is just dispel four myths for you about church planning. And then really quickly, if we're going to be engaged in church planning, part of a church plant movement thing, hey, what is it that a church really needs? that makes sense? Just ask those quick questions. And I want to make this as open and we can dialogue as, as good as we possibly can in the crowd. And my real goal is just how can I help you debunk any myths so that when you leave here today, you could go back to your churches or you could go back to your groups. And if somebody said, well, what about this? You can say, hey, wait a second. That's a myth. Here's why it's a myth, and here's what we really need, that, that you could walk out with that, just that simple tool. It's something that you could be able to just argue that way. Does that make sense? So let me pray for you and myself, and uh, let's just begin. Hey, Father, may we continue to be open to what you're saying to us, to how you could speak through us. Um, Lord, I pray that even this time, I pray for our churches and the people that we lead and those we want to influence that um, we could learn something here so that we could go back and grow others and see your kingdom expand and that you would give us a greater vision uh, for our communities and for your kingdom uh, maybe than we currently have. Uh, May we see you. uh, Could you say something in spite of me today to encourage and inspire and challenge these uh, people to follow you fully in all things? We love and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, let's just go through it and uh, look at a few of them real quick You've got notes if you have them again electronically if that's good I'm not trying to hide stuff for you So you know on your notes I I didn't put a bunch of blanks just a few But let's just give myth number one This is the myth of attendance The myth of attendance And here's kind of how the myth goes Uh, Some people might argue you have to be a certain size To give birth to a new church what do you, I'm I'm asking the question legitimately, so what would you say to that, What, what do you think about that when someone says that, or let me ask a different question, what is the perfect size to give birth to a church, what do you think the perfect size is, okay, you say any size, good answer, anybody else, how might you respond to this if somebody asked you, Okay, it's not true. Good. So any, any size is good, and this is not true. I like that. Let's move on, okay? Let's, uh, here's the truth when I meet with people. If I go to a church of 75 people, and I say, hey, would you consider planting a church, partnering with the church, doing it? And they come up with this. Do you know almost what they always say to me? Something like this. Well, when we get to about 150 or maybe 175, that would be the perfect time for us to plant. But by the way, if I go to a church of 175, guess what they say to me? A 250 to 300. 300 is really their, their kind of number. If I go to a church of 350 to 400, guess what they'll say? 500, and they really like 700 for some reason. That's the number. If I go to a church of 800, they want about 1,500. If I go to a church of 12 to 1,500, they want 2,500. Hey, I went to a church of 5,000, a church of 5,000 in North Carolina, and they looked right at me and said, we're not in the position to plant a church. We need to be closer to seven or 8,000 people. And my, my basic comment comes something like this. Really? Yeah. Really? I mean, and by the way, and, and I can almost respond the same way with 75, but at least at 75, I somewhat understand, okay? I at least somewhat understand with, with somebody saying that, uh, but the, the, the misconception. So, so here's the truth. The truth is this. It is your attitude toward daughter church planning, not the size of your crowd that determines your readiness. I mean, doesn't that make sense? Here's one of the things that I would just drive for us as personal things. Hey, there's some things theologically that I believe, and, and we've been hearing this this, con, this, this whole conference. Uh, for example, I, I personally believe that, um, that um, hell is real. Anybody here? Do you all actually believe that hell might be real? Okay, so that's, a, that's a theological truth I believe. By the way, I believe heaven is real too. I believe heaven's a real place. Um, by the way, I believe God's in control. That's a basic theological, simple way I'd put it. Uh, by the way, I think uh, the world is in need of a savior. It's a simple truth. Um, and by the way, I think Jesus is the only way. Okay? So let me just throw out those couple things. So here would be the question that I would then typically ask. If I were to say to you now, and if we were to do an exercise, here's to be the exercise that you could give people or do something. Hey, what are some theological things that you believe about God? And those might be some things that they'd say. Like, I love God's grace and his mercy and his thing. And I believe Jesus is the way and forgiveness is real and all that kind of stuff. So, so you get people to think through part of that. But then you just ask the question, um, do the actions that I practice today actually reflect the things that I state that I truly believe? So, I actually believe that my family members and friends that don't have a personal relationship with our Creator, who have not come to the grace and mercy and love of Jesus, experienced forgiveness, uh, that if they were to die today, they would be eternally separated from God's grace and mercy. And I don't have to understand what hell is because I don't understand what hell is. But I, I know one thing about hell. Hell is the absence of God. I am sure of that. I am sure that the grace and mercy and love that I've experienced, the hope that I've been able to enjoy, I guarantee you whatever hell is, it will not have that. And if that's all that hell was, what a horrendous place. The scary part is I think it's more from what we understand. But if it was just that, horrendous. So does that understanding flesh out into a practice of how I live. That becomes a personal journey for me. The question for the local church then is, the church is no more than a gathering of us together, you know, locally. Uh, you know, people, it's a body of people. The, the collection of the understanding of what the church is and the church's mission, how can we look, whether it's smaller or larger, and believe things theologically that don't come into practice? So I think we need to come back and look at some of those. And we'll talk about some of those, uh, you know, as we, we we get to some of the, so what does a church need? But any thoughts or comments on this before we move on? We just don't want to let the myth of size be one of the things. By the way, the smallest church that I've ever known personally to multiply was in Arizona, the north side of Phoenix. They were running 35 people, 35. And the pastor whom the people actually like. You see, when a pastor people don't like wants to plant a church, the people champion and pray and thank God and let them go, okay? They're like, we'll help you, please go. This guy was actually liked by his people, but here's what he said. I feel called to the south side of Phoenix, And I feel called to reach a very specific people group. And would you believe five people from the church went with the pastor with the church's blessing. And they sent the pastor out as a church planner to the other side of the city. A church of 35 people that gave away five people. Five people is 15 or 17% of your people, right? And they gave money. That's the smallest. That's the smallest I've ever seen. So don't say it it can't work. And we have to talk about some of that with what what we do need. Let me give you a second myth though. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, yeah, the myth of attendance. Sorry, go back. Th- uh, second, the myth of age. Here's how the myth of age is. The older the church, the better it is able to plant. The older the church, the better it is able to plant. What do you all think about this? Why? Why or why not? That's typically a very true statement. Okay? Did you, all hear, did you hear what he said? So basically, the older the group is, the less flexible, he used the word crystallized, but he, the relationships are formed, this is who we are, that's how it is. Any other comment? I think that's reasonable. Go ahead, John. Wow. Isn't that true? If, if you haven't taken a risk recently, taking a risk is a leap of faith. I mean, it becomes a greater. So you're, you're, it takes more, it gets harder, it gets more fearful. Um, So uh, you're right. I mean, here's the truth. Uh, Actually, normally the younger the church, the more flexible and open it is to reproduce it. And the older it is, the more crystallized, the more scary it is. Um, Historically and traditionally, and I think numerically currently, it is still argued today that if a church hasn't planted by the age of 15, it's in the high 90%, like 96% chance they will never plant a church by age 15. Year, I don't know why 15 is the number. If you look at the growth charts of church, you'll also see that the average church grows to about year 15. And after year 15, the average church in America actually begins a steady decline. And unless there's a new vision or a new leader or some kind of inspiration that changes the trage- trajectory of the church, do you know that most churches it's 15 years of growth and then slow decline? Uh, That comes, by the way, from Church Resource Ministries, CRM, if you want to be able to go look at some of that statistics. It's literally a bell curve up and down with 15 years being the point. 15 to years, 25 or 30, they see a plateau, and then the decline begins. So the younger, more flexible churches, and the most exciting thing, I don't know if you all have seen this in some of your church plants or people that are planting churches. I regularly see churches that on the opening day, the launch day of their church, I watched Daryl McCready on the eastern shore, for those in in our room from our area, uh, eastern shore of Maryland, stood up the very first day of his church and said, this is John, he's our next church planter. So on the opening day of a church plant, they're already having people there that they're saying, this is our next church plant. That's the goal from the very beginning, that we're here to release. So... I also want to say it is not impossible for a church over 15 years of age to plant a church. It just tends to begin, a, it's a long journey, a transition to it to bring back. Because what he said once your values are set, it's actually a change of an entire value system. It's not just a practice that they do. It's a value system. If, you're, if the goal of the, the existing church is, hey, how do we take care of ourselves? And I'll use that loosely because that's not all of them. But, but you move from a how do we take care of us to how do we reach them mentality. That is a journey for the average individual. Multi-year journey. In fact, in my church, here's just my personal experience. Uh, we, we've had over 200 adults that have come to Christ in our church in the first six years. Actually, uh, and out of those adults, if someone comes to Christ six months later, they'll do anything I tell them. If I just say, This is what Jesus said, they go, Okay. If somebody comes to my church and they've grown up in the church or had past church experience, it takes about six years to get them to buy what we do. And most of them, it's a fight journey along the way. It's a long value. So if you're an existing church that's trying to change values, it's a long journey, and that's normal, and, and that's okay. Uh, but with, with newer people, it's just much easier. So it's this myth of age that we have. Let me give you a third myth that there is. There is this myth of acquisition. And the myth of acquisition goes something like this. It's better to wait to engage in church planning after relocating or finishing a building or purchasing some land or doing something facility-wise. And after we do this, maybe later we'll engage in church planning. So what would you say to this comment? It might never happen. Wow. So so many funds will be used for the church building that you know the funds will never get to do a church planner. And but go ahead. Oh. And and there's a potential for that. Now make sure you hear this real clearly from me. Is there a problem with buildings Absolutely not. So this isn't a negative about buildings. And by the way, you may need to do updates on your buildings and you may, to do, you may need to fix up some things or to build something. In fact, I always laugh for people that are like, hey, we should be like Saddleback and we should wait you know, 20 years before we ever build our first building, which they were able to do. They moved 70 times or whatever they did and they were running 10,000 people. And then someone looks at Willow Creek and says, well, they built a building immediately. Well, let me just encourage you in case you don't remember, uh, Willow Creek's in the center of Chicago. Chicago that has three feet of snow most of the winter when it's solidly frozen down and, and saddlebacks in Southern California where they could just meet outside in a park 90 days out of 100. You know what I mean? So, so there are different environments too. So that drives part of what you do. But, but part of what we just want to make sure here is if you're thinking the building, when we think of a building in the land to have a growing dynamic church, you're not thinking that the church is the body of Christ but the facilities. So here's what's interesting for us. And I just want you to know if you want to plant churches. From day one, we talked about church planting. And in year four, uh, going into year five, we planted our first church that we completely released out of our church. We sent 40 people out of our church. We gave uh, thousands of dollars to a new church plant. And then all of a sudden, we had all these people in uproar. And I was completely shocked. So we had 40 people. We were running about 300 attendants. We had 40 people leave to go with the church plant. And we ended up having 40 people who left our church because we planted a church. And when I asked why, here's what they said to me. We are not building a church. We should build our own church before we release to start another church. That's what people would argue. So I did a series. I said, it's time to build. And all these people came back. And they're going, okay, so we're going fa- to build a facility. I said, no. I said, we're going to build a church. And they looked at me and said, what do you mean? I said, well, the church is the body of Christ. So we're going to build a church, and one day we might have a facility. The 40 that left, they left again, by the way, okay? (laughs) Just so you know, most of them didn't stay. It didn't go over as well as I thought it would for them. But hey, you know what it is? They had grown up in a model that's there. And by the way, part of what I was winning was Catholics to Christ. And by the way, a Catholic value, I learned this. It's not that it's unspiritual. The, the, The Catholic church, one of the values is the facility is part of what draws you to God. So they'd walk into a school, and, they, and from their understanding, God can't be here because there's no way God would be attracted to this facility. So they lost part of the all of God in their perspective. It was a value change. They're also the ones that when we did communion would call me priest, tell me nice homily, uh, you know, say thank you, Father, and stuff like that, which I enjoy part of that. I played up the game on that sometimes, but definitely strange uh, to have them come. But hey, just remember... Buildings aren't bad, facilities aren't bad, but it must be about people. By the way, I can say one for some of our leaders, a guy named Tim Simpson. He's up in uh, Germantown, Maryland. Tim was in a, a building program. They had to raise about a half a million dollars for, to renovate something. And, and, and he came to this principal, and someone said, Tim, why don't you help build a church? And here's what, uh, would you help plant a church? And Tim made this comment, well, we can't afford it. And one of his local leaders said to him, how can you afford a half a million dollars for a facility and we wouldn't give 10 or $20,000 to a church plant? Now initially he took it offensively, this is a couple years back, but then he stopped and he processed and he said, you know what, we're going to do something. And he came back and told his church, hey guys, if we're going to spend $500,000 to renovate our facility, why don't we tithe off of that and give it to a church plant to help plant the church? And when he told his church, he said they had been struggling to raise the $500,000, when he told his church, we're going to give away $50,000, the five hundred came in very quickly. He said all the money came in, and later on, uh, I, I don't ask him this question, by the way. But he said to me in private, "I said, hey, that was a real cool thing you did. They helped facilitate a church plant there. They gave stuff away." I said, "Would you do it again?" He told me no, and I was actually disappointed. I'm like, that doesn't work as well in my teaching if you say no. And he said, "Oh, actually, I would give more money to church planning because that had a lot more impact than us redoing our facilities." Now it wasn't that it wasn't good. And facilities are bad. Just make sure we keep in our mind, we have to tell people, the church is the body of Christ. And all around the world, we, y'all heard what they were saying. And uh, will you here when Kevin Ezel was talking about Cuba yesterday? And what's happening in Cuba? I don't think most of you were in the rooms. Hey, in Cuba, uh, Castro had actually told them they were doing house churches and Castro had said a couple years ago you can have up to 100 people in your house for a gathering and then after they started having all these groups of 100 people he didn't like it so he said I'm changing the rule you can't have more than 50 they begin to have groups of 50 exploding everywhere and he came back and said you cannot now have larger groups than 25 in your home Well, what was happening is every time he did it, they multiplied, divided, and continued to spread. And so what they're saying now is Castro's policies have caused a church plant movement across Cuba. And they asked the Cubans, should we be praying so that you could have facilities? And they was like, absolutely not. Don't dare pray that for us. That's not what we need. It's not what we need. Not that those are bad again. And and there's still needs for them. We're we're together on that. Y'all are with me, right? You got my heartbeat on that. So let me give you one more myth. Now, i think it can be both we have this myth of adequacy and here's just kind of how the myth goes that needs to be busted hey it's a we have to wait for the perfect time to birth a baby church there's some perfect time how might you answer that Well, so so let's just be let's just let's make it simple hey there is no perfect time to have a baby right I you know and by the way I know many of us may have said that same thing I I know you counsel people you talk with people and and you're right here's here's what people often say Well, we're going to wait for the perfect time to have a baby. I know what we're going to do I need a job making x amount of money. She needs a job. We must buy a house We must have a level of security We must be able to do this and they have all these things they'd like to do and when all of those things come into place Then will be the perfect time, right? Okay, for those of us who've had children in case you've had them Here's what I found out. I'm now 44 with four kids, and all I wish now is I had started earlier. Because when I meet a 40-year-old who's already a grandparent, and they're free and doing what they want, I'm now wishing, I wish we didn't wait. Not that we were waiting, we just didn't have kids early on. Uh, but, But there is, by the way, is there a perfect time to have a baby? No. Is there a perfect time to plant a church? No. By the way, is there a perfect time to plant a tree? Let me encourage you, there's not a perfect time to plant the tree, but if you ever want shade, the best time to plant a tree would have been sometime a few years ago. You see, we, we want the benefits, but it takes somebody taking that step. You know? So, so you, you wonder, when is there a the, the perfect time? There isn't. There's just not. By the way, I want to be honest here. Hey, there's some churches that have a level of unhealth. So somebody's going to argue, well, don't you have to be healthy? That's gonna, and that's a big quote because, okay, what does that mean, right? So typically what they mean by unhealthy is something like this. Our church is completely focused in on the inside and our people won't do something out there. Could, is that a reasonable definition if we just go with that simple one? I mean, there might be some other things. So say that's it. Well, here's what's interesting. Actually, birthing a new church is exactly what might help you to become healthy, in fact, you're unhealthy because you're not following biblical principles typically like discipleship and evangelism, which are actually one, they're not separated. But, but because you're not on mission it's typically what ends up in dishealth. And so we have to get back on mission. Let me give you all just one example of that from a biblical perspective that you could go back to and you could use in your churches, okay? So in Acts chapter two, Acts chapter two, 42 through 46, it's the birth of the early church and we hear that it's the model church. Y'all know that like from the Acts two church? You hear sermons and messages about that all the time. Um, by the way, I think it's good. It says they're in communion, they do teaching, they're fellowshipping, they're caring for one another. All of those are good qualities, Right? Here's the problem with that early church. Uh, Jesus said to them in Acts 1 8, hey, you will be my witnesses, and you will be my witnesses where? From? To? To? To the. Into the earth. Now, here's what's happening Acts one a, Jesus says that he says my power is going to come, the Spirit's going to come. Acts two, the Spirit comes. We see the new church, and we see all this exciting stuff happen. Thousands of people come to Christ. We can celebrate that. That is worthy of celebrating. Okay. But here's what's interesting: from Acts three through Acts seven, we see how the early church is happening. What's happening in Jerusalem? All their growth, how they're caring for one another, how they're ministering to the needs. And in Acts chapter eight, verse one, a very interesting scenario happens. What happens in eight one? persecution breaks out. Now, as soon as persecution breaks out, we see the stoning of Stephen, uh, Saul, later to be named Paul. He was the one blessing the stoning, in case, you know, biblically you didn't realize that. Uh, But as soon as the stoning happened, does anybody know what it states in the following passage after that stoning? The next verses say this. They spread out from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and... The ends of the earth. So here's what's interesting. Acts 1, eight, Jesus says, Hey, this is what you're going to do. You're going to be my, Jerusalem, my witnesses from here to there. Early church begins. 8, one. persecution occurs. And then you, then you see it from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, right? So now here's my question from you. How many days, weeks, months passed from Acts 2, when the new church was birthed, but Acts 1.8, when Jesus said it, and Acts 2 when the church was birthed, to Acts chapter 8 when they actually became the witnesses to the end of the earth. So, you know, I, I read the seven s- chapters of Scripture about how much time passed. Anybody smart enough to know? I didn't know. I, I, some, some great historian, theologian told me. I had no clue. I'm sure someone here's smarter than me. Days, weeks, months? Two to three years? That sounds a little extensive. In between. Most historians are going to argue six to eight years. Seven years is the typical number about seven years for those seven chapters, which always amazes me, because, you know, I read a chapter and think a day has passed, right, you know? Uh, So seven years have passed in those seven chapters. So here's what's interesting. Do you realize the early church was birthed? They became this amazing new organism, and they never did the most basic command that Jesus asked them to do, which was to go be my witnesses. By the way, the sad part is this is exactly what Jerusalem of old did. Jerusalem of old who is meant to be the light on the hill instead of going to the world spreading the message that there's a, a love of God that through the sacrifices and the relationship they could have a relationship with God they they believe that but here's what they did they said hey we're Jerusalem we're the best if you come to us and you adopt our ways then you can engage with our god by the way the early church did something fairly similar they hunkered down they cared for each other and they were just waiting for Jesus to come again and Jesus said wait a second i told you to go be my witnesses And by the way, I think the majority of the United States, not the rest of the world, because by the way, there's an explosion of Christianity all across the planet, except in Europe, Australia, and here. Everywhere else it's exploding. The, The Holy Spirit is moving in amazing ways, in crazy ways all over the world. But in places like this, here's what's happened. The church has bought the Acts 2 and missed the passage that said, keep going. So we're doing nine out of ten things right, but we missed as you were going. Which, by the way, is what Jesus also said in Matthew 28, right? As you were going, make disciples. And teach them to obey. The other flaw with it is, what, why, why people think it's a perfect time, when it says teach them to obey, I grew up in a church that said, I'm going to teach you scriptural knowledge. I'm going to teach you all these things. And, and they thought, teach me all those things, that all of a sudden it would flesh out of my practices of obedience. So what we did is, if you have lots of knowledge and you, and you get the stars on the chart and you show up, you're a follower of Christ. That's a fully devoted follower. Uh, that, that's a Christian, right? But the truth is, he said, as you're going, obey So, when it comes back to this, here's what I find the most simple thing is for us planting new churches. If we're basically just obedient to the most simple things of Scripture, as you're going, make disciples and be my witnesses from here to there, how can we not see a movement of God occur by launching and planting new churches and seeing new people one to Christ and growing up in their faith and multiplying? It just must occur. So, we must go. By the way, don't go back now and teach in your church that Acts 2 is a bad passage. It's not. It's just not the whole story. It's only part of it. They miss the going part. So just remind them, you have to go. That's the last part of the church. And by the way, if we remind our churches, we must go. Make sure we don't miss this either. The Southern Baptist Convention, one of the greatest things about our cooperative program, I mean, we are blessed. We have one of the greatest giving mechanisms in the whole world. The problem was, over the last generation... We thought that going meant writing a check to the program and giving money. And we stopped engaging people to go. So, so our greatest thing became one of our greatest weaknesses. Because we thought as long as I'm sending him, I'm doing my job. So I'll just write a check. So I'm happy now because so many people are re-engaging and going, No, the obedience factor is mine. The going factor is mine. And what I don't want to have happen is what happened there. Or maybe this will I'm wondering, is the only way that America will get back to doing the most basic thing that Christ asks us to do is to have an Acts chapter 8 kind of persecution? Because we can either do it the easy way or the hard way. The easy way is doing what he tells us to do. The hard way is, I will make you do what you'll do if you won't do what I ask you to do. By the way, that's how I learn sometimes. You all, like, you all hard-headed sometimes? So my prayer becomes something like this. Jesus, may I learn the easy way so I don't have to learn the hard way. Because all I think is this. Hey, you know what? If you don't want to worship me, I'll let the rocks cry out, right? He's going to have what he's going to have. He'll do it in spite of us. So I think we either choose to join in him or he's going to get done what he wants to get done. And by the way, China and Africa, the places that, he's being persecu- that they're being persecuted, you know they're all flourishing, right? We met with Chinese leaders. They'll tell you, oh, don't pray for us that we're not being persecuted. We pray for you because they think we've gotten lazy because we have no need. They said you have no need for the Holy Spirit like we do. That was convicting and and true for many of us. So so then jump to the other side. So, So then what is it that we do need? What are some of the few things that we do need to be part of a church planning as a church? Number one, let me just throw this. We need a burden for lost people. Um, one of the greatest gifts I ever had in my life, I I had a, a, I have a guy in my church who's a Dateline NBC producer, and, um, he got an invite from, uh, he was, he was interviewing uh, Chick-fil-A's Dave. He was interviewing uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins on, on the, the Left Behind series. He was in, uh, interviewing a Christian banker. And between meeting with all those guys, uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins said to him, he, he said, you know, have you ever thought about doing a series on end time prophecies, asking the question, if all the prophecies about Jesus came true, well, then what, wh- how would that change our lives? And they're like, hey, that's cool. Why don't you come to Israel with us and, and follow us around and let's talk about that. So he came back to me and he said, hey, Kevin, here's the deal. I don't know the Bible. I'll pay for you to come on a 10-day trip with me to Israel if you'll just follow us around with Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins for 10 days as we video them. And every time that they would ask him a question, Tim LaHaye and Jerry would answer and they would turn to me going, why don't we ask next? Because they didn't know the biblical next question. So all I did is I got to ask questions the whole time and watch them. Now, here's one of the most interesting things. I don't know if you ever read the books. I'm never going to read the books. I read practical stuff, and so I don't read, like, fiction or whatever it is, you know. But, you know, whatever it is, here's the thing. I know the people. I know the man. In fact, I got to baptize them in in the Jordan while we were there. And, And with that, Tim LaHaye got up. And the very last day, we were on the hotel... That was outside of Jerusalem, looking back over where you know Golgotha is, and looking over the city. And we were up on the hotel. They put a video camera on him, and I'm sitting behind the camera like this, enjoying the thing, asking the questions. And he turns to Tim LaHaye and he asks this question. And Tim LaHaye does this. Tim LaHaye goes. The reason I wrote these books is because of the truth of Revelation 21 and 22, where he says, "Come to me." All of you who are weary and heavy burden, I'll give you rest. Come drink of the living water. And as Tim began to say that, he began to cry. I'm sitting this far from him, and I start seeing tears run down his face. He says, I imagine Jesus standing here as he looks over Jerusalem going, Jerusalem, my Jerusalem. Like a mother hen who wished she could gather to her, her chicks. And he starts crying so hard. I swear to you today, I didn't know what the term crocodile tears meant. His tears were so big, they were dripping off his cheek onto a sidewalk where there was literally a puddle. And I'm sitting back here watching a man that I had never seen somebody who had such a burden for the lost people. I had never seen someone cry for lost people like that and I was convicted going do I actually care about people like him and it changed my life till today I, again I'll never read the books I don't care what people think here's the thing I know why he wrote them because he weeps over lost people and you know what I gotta like someone who weeps over lost people but, but, if, but if Christ would weep over lost people when were the burdens of Christ become the burden of his church his people how can we have the same kind of burden for the lost? This is why that theological understanding must become a practical reality. I, and, and this is a journey for all of us. I mean, we all have to work on it. But for me, I forever will have imprinted in my mind that man sitting across from me weeping. Just convicting. And we must help our people get a level of urgency that says, hey, we care about lost people. Uh, number two, we must have a willingness to step out in faith. A willingness to step out in faith. A lady named Jean Fleming once wrote this statement. She wrote, Faith presumes risk. Faith presumes risk. And her question became, What kind of risk are you taking? Uh, one day, sitting in a round circle, uh, I heard Rick Warren as he was talking to a group of leaders, and I thought this is very fascinating. One of the things he asks his staff on a regular basis is, where have you failed lately? Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm in a staff meeting and someone asks me where have I failed, my answer wants to be nowhere. I'm excelling, in fact, I'm excellent in all that I do, above and beyond all that could be asked, imagined, or achieved, right? I know what I'm doing, we're doing it well, right? But here's what he said. I said, I don't want to tell you that I failed. He goes, I'm telling you now, if my staff looks at me and can't tell me failures, then from my perspective, they're not doing their jobs well. And I looked at him, and I remember, a a whole crowd of us looked at him, he goes, here's the thing. If we're not willing to take risk for Christ then we're missing something. And I'd rather someone risk and fail than to tell me they're quote-unquote successful in all that they do. I thought that was interesting. And my personal journey, I'm just telling you, I now ask myself all the time, I don't really want it, but I don't know about you, have I been in a position anytime recently that I was at such a place on the edge that if God didn't show up, everything that I did would be completely collapsing? See, I don't know about you. I'm not a person to want to depend on others. I'd rather be self-made and hold on to it. But to be on the edge of faith where it says, God, if you don't show up, this church plant won't succeed. God, if you don't show up, the funding won't come in. God, if you don't show up, people won't get saved. God, if you show up, this won't happen. I don't have to live like that normally. Pretty much I have this safe little bubble that I strategize and plan. and, and, And my risk is a calculated risk. And I'm not saying that's bad. But sometimes, taking a step of faith is what God is asking of us in our journey. And I just wonder, what was the last risk that we did? Just something to think about and say, I'm going to step out waiting for God to show up. By the way, have you ever had God show up when you're on the edge before? It is such a good thing. That doesn't mean I like being in the position, though. So how do we find out that balance? And and I don't know for your ministries and, and for our lives. All I know is... For us to be able to engage in reaching and penetrating the darkness, we must step out in faith. A third thing I would say quickly, you must have a vision for a region. A region. Now, this is one that you could argue with, potentially, but, but hear me out on this real quick. What I mean by this is, if your vision is for your community, your people, if, if it's this big, this is my job right here. I would say that's myopic. I like focus. I like focus. But I don't want you just to think, hey, in Baltimore and, and in Washington, D.C., places are often in communities. Like in Baltimore, it's literally neighborhoods. There's about 220 neighborhoods in Baltimore. And, and, and each neighborhood has distinct needs. And, and I love it when someone says, I'm called to this neighborhood in the city. But here's the thing. If you want to reach a neighborhood but you don't really care about the rest of the city, something's missing, right? So somehow we must think beyond whatever we have. You must think bigger in whatever we're doing. Because if we're only thinking about us, then it's hard to think about God's kingdom, which will be our sixth one too, by the way. But we must be thinking from a more global perspective. Whatever we're thinking, think bigger. If you only think Jerusalem, we're missing the Judea and and, and, and and the Samarias and to the ends of the earth. And those for us, we know they've all come to us. So it's even me going, hey, if I'm, in a, if I'm in Rockville, which is where my last church was, uh, we in my church had 64 different nationalities on an average weekend, and 46 of them were first generation. 46 first generation at Montrose. By the way, I remember the first time I preached there, we were doing five services on a weekend, and I got up for my first sermon, and I think I'm like preaching the sermon, and I'm watching all these people talk to each other. And I'm really irritated and I'm kind of animated and loud. So I make more emotions. I start speaking faster. I try to throw in more stories because I'm wondering why aren't these people engaging? And then somewhere in my mind I'm going, and I'm going to preach this four more times. This is bad. And I was kind of irritated thinking I had the most unspiritual message that I had ever preached. And when I finished, a cute little Korean woman walked by. She was about this big. And she said, oh, Pastor Kevin, that was one of the most powerful messages I ever heard. And it was so encouraging, I'm like, okay, it wasn't horrendous. She goes, but but do me a favor. What? She said, You have to slow down. We were trying to translate and you wouldn't stop. <laughs> and I came to find out they were all translating to each other. I thought they were talking. They were translating. We actually ended up starting six churches in that church where all the ethnicities would come to the service because they wanted to hear it in English, and then they would go to their own people group and have a gathering with a separate service afterwards with those peoples. I thought, wow, we learned a lot about them. But someone's got to step out in faith. Someone's got to take the risk. Someone's got to have the larger region. Now, our region was right there in our midst to start an Arabic church and a French-African church and an Hispanic church. And I didn't know, because Carlos is here, uh, my my brother's in Hispanics, I didn't know El Salvadorians and Mexicans and Guatemalans and Hondurans, they're all different. And then I learned this, not all of them like each other. I didn't know that. I didn't know that Mexicans think El Salvadorians are dumb and uh, El Salvadorians think like Mexicans are like boring or lazy or something. I, they all think things kind of like, you know, I think West Virginians don't have that much to offer because I'm from Maryland or something like that. And we make jokes about local stuff. Uh, they, they have the same thing. But you must think larger than yourself no matter what you do. Let me give you a fourth thing right, real quick. We need spiritual maturity. We need spiritual maturity. So one of the hardest parts when it comes to something like this too is we have to be just mature enough to be able to say, okay, are we going to do what God asks us to do? Are we willing to step out in faith? Are we willing to take risk? Are we willing to, to just listen to God, to, to ask Him what He wants, to respond to Him? And by the way, can I just tell you, you don't need any extra biblical response from God uh, if it's in the Bible. I hear people all the time going, well, I'm waiting to see what God says about this. Well, you don't need to wait for it. I mean, it's already in the Bible. It's pretty easy. Let's just go with that. It's already there. Now, you may have some specific calling to an area or a people group on top of that, but you can engage in all of that just because of spiritual maturity because God said so. What else do we really need to have to do? I think this. Why are we asking God for certain things when we're not doing the most basic things he's asked us to do? So let's just do what we know he wants us to do and trust that he'll show up to give us more on that. That takes a spiritual maturity on our part as leaders in the church. Let me give you a fifth thing. A generous spirit. A generous spirit. Can I just tell you, if you want to engage in church planning, it's going to take time, energy, and effort. It will take physical energy. It's going to take mental energy. It will take spiritual energy. It will take physical needs. It's just the reality. And it's not, it could be money. It could be people. It could be a place. And it could be all the emotions. It just takes a lot of things. And do we believe something as simple as this? Give and it shall be given unto you by the way so a spiritual thing that might go along with this with the general spirit and, and the kingdom mindset i often hear people "Well, if god will give it to us then we will go do it but what is god's principle right you go do it first and then i'll make sure i take care of you test me try me prove me that's the kind of thing god says when it comes to stuff like that right so can we have a generous spirit As pastors, you often hear stuff like this. I'll know part of a person's dedication by looking at their checkbook, right? Y'all ever heard that one in a sermon? So as a leader to another leader, I would often say, um, I'll know your commitment to the kingdom by how generous you are with your people, your things, your facilities, and everything else. Hey, you know what? We could double the number of church plants in America doing one thing. We could double tomorrow doing one thing. You know what we could do? We could just open up our current churches to ethnicities. And by the way, even ethnic churches need to open up to Anglos too, because we have some ethnics who won't open up either. But you know, if every church just was willing to open up to an ethnic church to say, you can meet in here at a different time when we're not meeting here, do you know you could double the number of the churches? But I can't tell you how many churches I meet with who refuse to share their building. They won't give them space to walk in. Across denomination lines, everything. I'm just amazed. We had a church just recently I met with in New Jersey and we had a Haitian church planner and the Haitian church planner went to the church because they had been supporting a Haitian mission for 20 years. So the, mission, the pastor came to him and said, we are planning a Haitian church. I've got 12 people in my small group that are meeting. We've outgrown my apartment. Can we move it into your church because we see that you're supporting a Haitian mission for the last 20 years. The church leaders got together, came back and said, no, they wouldn't let them use the facility. They're like, you would support a mission in Haiti for 20 years, but not, not let a Haitian missionary work out of your church. And you know what they said? Uh, that's correct. Our people won't like that. You might pull down a picture off the kid's wall in the children's room or, or leave a table or a chair out of place. So here's what I would say. Like it's yours anyways. I mean, it's God's already. So, okay, I moved to preaching real quick. Sorry, let's, uh, let's go to one more thing real quick. Number six, a kingdom mindset. So it's a kingdom mindset. How can we just be thinking far beyond who we are and just say, hey, it's all about God's kingdom anyways? And in one of the hard parts, especially in the last generation, this one's kind of changing, and I'm not knocking people-wise generation, but in the last years of looking, we have been so much about building things around the church, and it seems like building our little kingdoms. Um, but, but when we pray, we pray stuff like this, um, my kingdom come, or... Thy kingdom come. It's thy. And here's what I want to remind you of just from a simple passage of Scripture. Jesus says, I will build my... And the gates of hell would not prevail, right? I want to remind you of this. I was in the Marine Corps, and this is what I learned about it, being in the offense, you know, learning that, hey, the enemies over there, were over here. One of the kingdom's mindsets, when you say this passage, when Jesus said these words... The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Is a gate in someone's yard, is a gate for an offensive or defensive purpose? Defense. So understand this. I don't want you to come in so I put up a gate, right? So here's what Jesus is saying. Hell has a gate that they put up to keep lost people lost. Does that make sense? When the church does what the church is supposed to do, My church, I'm going to build the church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against the offensive movement of my church. So hear this, they've got lost people with gates trying to keep lost people moving from death to life, from darkness to light, from despair to hope. But when the church prevails, they are going over the gates of hell and yanking people back to life. It is a kingdom mentality. And Jesus will do that if we'll just get on board. Now, here's one other thing I learned in the military. If y'all ever watch movies, uh, you know, if you watch movies, especially about the military, it's funny. The Army, the Navy, Air Force, or the Marines, y'all ever see them get in fights where they're always in, you know, brawling against one another? When do the military fight against each other? Always. Y'all ever notice when they get in fights? It's always in one place. A bar, right? Here's what's interesting when you're in a bar fight, with the military, they're fighting each other thinking one is better than the other, right? Can I tell you but by being in the military, when I'm on the front line and I'm in a foxhole, I don't care if you're Army, Navy, or Air Force, or Marines. You know why? I only have one question. What's the one question if I'm in a foxhole on the front line? Do you have my back? Are you on my side? Here's what's interesting. When the church is on the front line engaging the enemy, I don't care who's next to me as long as they're on my side. But if I go on rest and relaxation, I begin fighting those who should be my partners because we're back drinking and partying and having a good time. If the church is fighting the church, it's because we're not on the front lines. And when we move to the front lines, we'll remember the most basic principles, in the kingdom mindset. It's about darkness and light. It's about hell versus heaven. It's about life versus death. Any questions that we have on this? That'd be the last uh, principle that, that we would just have, and let me give you a thought or two. Questions or comments? Or statements? Good talk. Thank you. So... Go ahead, please. Jameson. No, go ahead, please. First, I'll, I'll come to this in a second. Yeah, unless you're going to ask about that. Okay, so, so, so here's what's going on then. Um, well, number one, you've got a card around you right here. And uh, the question that I would ask you today is, is, what can we do? By the way, do you want to do this or am I supposed to do it? I was going to do it. Are you in here to do this or are you here because you want me to encourage and inspire and challenge you, Bob? Okay, good, good. Um, good. Did I do good enough for you, Bob? Did I do well enough for you? Just making sure, you know, in case you want to publicly say I was good or something like that. I'd be happy with that. It encourages me, all right? That's a <laughs> uh, thank you. So here's the thing. My question to you is what can we do for whatever you need? I'm not sure what your need is, but I'm asking what's your next step. Let me give you a couple suggestions uh, for what your next step might be in case i don't know but the, i think these are three common ones so let me give you three of them maybe you're here today you're a planter or a pa- you're someone who wants to plant a church you feel called to plant or maybe you're a pastor who wants to get engaged in church planning and maybe you're like i want to i want to plant a church or maybe you're someone saying i want to know what it means to partner with a church planner who's on the field to get my church involved all three of those mechanisms begin by going to mobilize me, if you go to NAM.net and go to Mobilize Me, you can literally, it's a yellow button on there. You'll see it in all the checkouts and stuff. They were showing it on the videos yesterday. If you go downstairs, they have cards. If you come over to the room at lunch, there's cards sitting there and they can sign you up right now. You can go to Mobilize Me and just say, I want to know what it means to be a partner church, uh, which means I want to support or pray or, or, or help with you know, projects to help a person. I feel like we want to send, you know we want to start a church. Now, it may take you 18 months or two years. It doesn't mean you have to do it today. But but help me. Help me. That's what you're saying. Help me figure out that next step. Or you may say, hey, I want to be a multiplying church. This means we want to develop up leaders and send them out. Fine. Uh, we have somebody to help you with that. But then um, I think what most people need, and we are beginning it at this conference, is this. We have uh, partnered with Dynamic Church Planning International. Um, I've been a trainer for DCPI for the, for the last uh, nine years now. And, and I have trained this training um, all over the world. Um, DCPI has helped train 55,000 leaders that have helped plant about 125,000 churches. Many of them are Southern Baptist. They have a dream to help facilitate multiple denominations, plant 5 million churches. That's what they do. But here's what Send North America has done. We said, hey, why are we trying to reproduce our own material when somebody's already got good stuff out there? So what we do, we've partnered with them. It didn't cost us a penny. It's all for free. They're giving it to us. And by the way, our gift to them is we're helping translate it into Spanish and into Korean and into Chinese right now, and into multiple other languages. So we're helping pay for some of the partnership, the translations. They've given it to us for free. What we do is a two and a half day training. Here's how the training works. The first day is basically vision casting. You ask stuff, why do we plant churches? How do we plant churches? What are the answers to the objections to plant church? Because if you want to go back to your churches and say, we want to plant a church, people are going to go, well, isn't that going to break up our fellowship? And doesn't it cost a lot of money? And, and, and won't it take too many leaders? And they'll start asking all these things. So we help you walk through that and then we talk about well how do i know when it's time what are mistakes that we want to avoid so we have one day that trains you to go back to your church and lead them on a church planning journey then the second day of the training you start walking through well what does it mean for our church to be engaged how can we determine our level of involvement am i going to give a staff person are we going to give money are we going to do it all ourselves are we going to partner with other people So you start walking through the questions. How do I come up with a core group? How do we determine what area we're going to go to? So we walk through a whole second day that actually begins you processing the proactive part of reaching your community or where you want to plant. And then here's what we add, which takes just a couple more hours. During that time, we're going to have breakouts and you'll actually be required to be working through an idea of what you should be doing. And at the end of the training, you will give a presentation that says, here's where I think we are, here's where I think we should go, and I'm working at least on this one area. This is the only part I know, but at least we're starting here. Some of you may be, I now know the community, I'm working on the core groups, I'm developing a leader. So wherever you are, you're gonna just say, this is where we are, then you're gonna have leaders pray, but you actually give a short presentation, we're gonna pray over you, and we're gonna ask you to go back and carry it out. And then one more thing that's happening, we're currently running a pilot, if you get on board sooner than later, we're running a pilot that we're going to take a group of leaders and actually have a coach that's going to walk you through a couple months of actually walking through the process so that if we had five or six pastors in the room that we're all trying to move on to help them. So that's what this is about. Now here's what's happened at this event this week. 27 events have been scheduled across the USA this next year. So every, every region of our country has about four or five events right now already scheduled. But here's the secret. Next week, I'm meeting with leaders in Alpharetta and I'm certifying more trainers, and we are setting up an entire network of certified leaders. Some of you here might be gifted teachers. So we want you to come through the training, then help us partner with some other trainings, and then ultimately carry out other trainings. Does that make sense? So 27 are pre scheduled, but here's what happens. If you're in this room right now and you're like, I want to host an event, I need them to come to our area and we don't have something that's going to be there, we want to help facilitate this occurring in your region. My personal dream is all 2,000 of our associations in the Southern Baptist Convention need to be hosting one of these trainings over the next three to five years. That's my personal dream. That's why I'm doing the job that I'm doing. I'm praying that today's kind of training will help you do this. And by the way, today's stuff that I just did is one of the sessions from the training. So I specifically gave you an example of what a session would be like. This is part of the first day for the vision casting. So this training is available. By the way, if you go to the sinconference.com, which is right today, it's part of the notes going on. The training dates, some of them are listed on there. Other ones will be on the website, but if you want to be part of a training, you can just write, I want to lead a training, be a part of training, I want to get involved with it, whatever it is, help train me. Just write on there, I want the two-and-a-half-day training. We will follow up with you and say, "What part? right where you are in the country, we'll help you find one, or we will get one for you. My Hispanic brothers, we just talked. We have Chinese, Hispanic, we're working on Vietnamese right now to be started. Uh, there's a Hispanic one early this fall. Uh, over on on the east coast we have a chinese one in san francisco that's happening september i believe so if you need another language we'll help you with that so any other questions about this anything that we can help you with i've got one minute so was that a good enough explanation of the two and a half day we can get you more information on that um and soon, I think they're on the Sun conference. They will be on the NAM.net. One of the things that I did, uh, especially the first day of training, the vision casting, I went on and made 10 videos that are all 5 to 10 minutes that just teach part of the training. So like on, um, on myths or mistakes to avoid, I only do two mistakes, but there's eight more. But in case you need a teaser to get people involved, you can say, oh, here's two mistakes. Oh, you want to hear the other mistakes? You have to come to a training. May God bless you in your ministries. If I can help in any way. Um, about My name and email are on your thing. Sorry, there it is. My cell phone also if you need something.